Hello, and welcome to Securing Sexuality, the podcast where we discuss the intersection of intimacy and information security. I'm Wolf Gorlick. He's a hacker. And I'm Stephanie Gorlick. She's a sex therapist. And together we're going to discuss what safe sex looks like in a digital age. Today we are talking to Amy Clotier, a female sexual health patient advocate with over 10 years experience in research, education, and advocacy around a variety of vulvovaginal, pelvic, and sexual health topics. She's also the creator of Healthy Hoo-Ha, a digital resource dedicated to providing unbiased, evidence-based resources to women and those with vulvas. Welcome, Amy. Thanks. Hi. Um, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work and uh, specifically what is Patient Health Advocate? Um, Let's start with a little bit of backstory to how I got into patient advocacy. I was a um, patient uh, who had uh, many different women's sexual health um, issues that I struggled to find any qualified healthcare professionals who could properly diagnose and treat the issues that I was having. But this was at a time when um, research was still basically non-existent and there just wasn't any knowledge for what was happening. As the last 20 some years have gone by and research has been conducted um, by the wonderful people at the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, um, I have been Uh, fortunate to be able to follow along with the research that has been coming out. Um, I have through the university access to um, all of like the PubMed published articles, things like that. And so I I can just read along as they get published and um, learn about all the same things that there is coming out. And so I, I just amassed this, this huge pool of knowledge for myself to try to help my me and my doctors figure out maybe what was happening to me as all this research was being developed more and more doctors were joining the forces and while the pool of clinicians is still very very small um, i found one who uh, was following along right along with me who belonged to this organization Um, she knew exactly what was happening to me when i went to see her the very first time and that basically changed the trajectory of my life. I went home to my husband and um, among other conversations had said, look, there's gotta be a way to fix this for other women. Social media and the internet was prolific, but it wasn't what it is today with various uh, um, support groups, you know, subreddits, things like that. Um, And so there wasn't an avenue really for me to, spread my knowledge very well, but I I did where I could. So I just kept amassing all of this knowledge. And then about 2017, 18, something like that, I had a friend who said, check out this subreddit. And I went there and it was a bunch of women or those uh, assigned female at birth who were struggling with vulvovaginal and sexual health problems and couldn't find clinicians to help them. And I started just pouring all of my knowledge into this uh, subgroup, this this subreddit support group. And I was spending an enormous amount of time um, basically just responding to people. Uh, And I I turned, you know, I went to my husband when we were talking about all this stuff. And I I said, it's got to be a better way for me to get my knowledge out to these, um, these women and these people who are struggling for answers. 
And so the uh, website Healthy Hoo-Ha was born. I started publishing, um, self-publishing articles of the knowledge that I had where I was able to take um, the uh, scientific vocabulary and turn that into something that most people could understand if they didn't understand scientific and medical jargon. You know, I was also publishing information that wasn't very available except in scientific uh, articles that were being published. The website uh, turned into this whole I call it an organization, but it's really just me. <laughs> um, but it turned into this whole organization, this, this patient advocacy and education organization, where I I still write articles that are that are helpful, but I belong to that women's sexual health organization now as a patient advocate. And so I work alongside and collaborate with medical professionals. I give them information about their patient base and what is needed. And the, the, the things that the patients are saying that might be lacking or that they're struggling with and, and can direct these clinicians and researchers on where to look next, how to help their patients. But then I'm also able to take the information from these clinicians and bring it back to the patients where they need it in vocabulary that they can use um, and, and just up-to-date information that they might not be able to find elsewhere on, on the internet. Um, my husband and I are developing an app that will help um, significantly help the patient and clinician communication uh, based on what is happening to the patient with their symptoms. I personally am also um, just doing all kinds of other projects. I'm spreading the word on podcasts like this. I am you know, developing like sexual education uh, curriculum, things like that. But patient advocacy involves people who, like me, have struggled to find answers. And so they've taken it upon themselves to go to the evidence-based information. There are all kinds of uh, levels of patient advocates, and some don't necessarily work in evidence-based. Some are kind of in between. Some are very holistic. There's all different, different kinds. But the patient advocates that I have um, encountered seem to just gravitate towards that evidence-based information because they have spent 20 years looking at everything on Google that was crap. <laughs> and I don't know if I can say that on your podcast. I'm sorry. But um, I've just noticed that they just they, they live in this evidence base. And so they take all of that information and they spread it among all of these different social media groups. They are starting fundraisers. They are getting research accomplished. We have basic scientists who have struggled and they said, you know what, if nobody else is going to fund this research, I'm going to conduct the research. So um, there can be some uh, people in medical professions who say, well, we don't need patient advocates. I'm the patient advocate. That's what medical professionals are for. But patients are finding that they're not getting the advocacy and education that they need from medical professionals. And so we're becoming advocates ourselves. That was a large mouthful for all of your listeners, but that's essentially what the sexual health patient advocate is. So that's a lot. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a mouthful, but it's a lot. And part of why, you know, I was excited to talk to you is because part of my background is patient advocacy, right? I used to do patient engagement consulting. 
So I would go in with doctors as a part of sort of their a condition of their employment. And I would shadow them and watch their conversations with patients, watch um, them doing procedures at times, and then sit down with them at the end of the day and give them feedback on how to be kinder, more empathetic, how to connect with patients. And reproductive health is one of the areas where that can be a challenge because there are so many sort of social biases about what is and isn't okay to talk about, what is considered polite conversation. And then we have, you know, just this long history of women being excluded from their healthcare in general. Um, in favor of their husbands or their fathers sort of dictating the terms of things. I remember Mad Men back in the day, uh, the TV show, where the doctor's talking to the husband about Betty's care and conditions. And um, there are people alive today who weren't told that they had breast cancer. Their husbands were, their fathers were, but these women were not included in their own bodily decisions and, and you know, life outcomes. So I think what you do is really phenomenal. And I think from what I've seen as a patient engagement consultant, it is so very necessary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sexual medicine is partly uh, slow as it is because people are either the clinicians or the patients are struggling to discuss such um, intimate topics. And I, as an advocate, I'm clearly very um, vocal and um, blunt about these topics. I have to be, but it's just my personality. And so I, I kind of internally chuckle a little bit when a sexual medicine clinician says, I find it difficult to bring some of these subjects, subjects up with my patients. And I'm like, you're, you're kind of in that field. If you're in that field, why are you struggling to discuss these things? <laughs> and the patient is there because they're having problems. Now, it is more difficult to get the patient to open up because they are not working in the field. They didn't choose to be there. They're there because they're having a health condition. But the clinician, if they are working in that field, they should have no issues discussing these topics. They chose to be there. Because of some of the difficulties that people can have talking about these with clinicians, a lot of people, like you alluded to, have have went to community groups, right? And there's this double-edged sword. I love social media for the ability to, to create a community group, to create a space that people can talk about what they're concerned about and have these discussions. Uh, I also get concerned, having seen some of the research on TikTok communities and on Reddit communities, uh, that there may not be good information being shared. So A, is that a valid concern of mine? Yes. And B, how do you make sure that these groups are getting the information they need? It is a valid concern. Um, and it's something that I and my cohorts struggle with all the time. Um, we end up actually getting burnout um, regularly and need to take breaks because we go into these groups that we help and it is such a plethora of bad information or information that someone was trying to do a really good job at providing evidence-based information, but they weren't exactly quite right. I've had, you know, moderators who might be a nurse who don't give medical advice, but they're there to make sure that it, there is somebody who can provide evidence-based information. And I even had to correct them on some things. 
And so it's, it's a constant struggle and I'm, I'm by no means, you know, perfect and know everything that there is to know. Um, but it, it, the, the concern is valid. There is constantly a, a plethora of, of information that you either have to, um, report or you have to correct or, um, you know, uh, things like wives tales treatments are being spread and you just, you have to, you know, guide people down the right path. Otherwise, we're not going to get to a point where people can be re relied upon. It's just going to become an, another place of misinformation. Which leads to your website, your app, your work with Healthy Hoo-Ha, because you can't be everywhere all at once. You cannot be expected to, you know, correct everybody on the internet live and in real time. So talk to us about your project and how that's unfolded. Like you mentioned, so I have the, the website where I publish. I, I do have a way to contact me on there. Um, you know, it gives like a contact form and it goes to my Gmail that I have set up for that. And you can contact, I've, I've helped women um, or patients that have come to me through there. But the website is mostly just where I can publish the articles so that if I do have um, somebody that I find online that has um, a question that I've kind of already provided all the information for, um, I don't have to spend that time retyping all the information. I can say, hey, I've written an article that answers all of these questions. You know, you go, here's the link. You can go to it. You can you know, take your time to read it all. If you have questions, please, please let me know. So that's what the website does is, is just gives people a place to go and read. They don't have to you know, worry about you know, how, how buried their, the comment is and whatever profile they have or platform they have. You know, where did I find that information? Um, it was on, just on the Healthy Hoo-Ha website. I love the advocacy piece that you mentioned too, because you know, we just, just this week came out of the midterms and you know, Roe was overturned this year. So there were a lot of sort of state level initiatives, both for and against accessing reproductive health care. Um, Wolf and I are in Michigan, which was exciting because we were one of three states that enshrined reproductive health care in our state constitutions. I was a little irritated that Vermont and California beat us to it because we were all on the same night and I really wanted to be number one. <laughs> And then every state that had, you know, restrictions or bans or limitations on reproductive agency and frankly, bodily autonomy, because so many of these things, you know, they give it the, the lens of abortion, but it goes into so many more issues and it ripples out into other aspects of healthcare. Those were all voted down, which I love to see. And I'm curious, kind of your thoughts as a patient advocate, what that means for you in terms of healthcare for people with vulvas and vaginas. Um, we, are, as a people, are never going to agree on like when life begins. And that's fine. We don't have to agree. But we do have to find um, a way to live together. Part of the way that we live together, at least in um, where we are now, in my opinion anyway, is that we allow people to make their own decisions, whether someone thinks that my decision is wrong or right, or I think someone else's decision is wrong or right. If we can't make our own decisions, how are we going to get along? How are we going to be our own person? The Roe versus Wade and the reproductive health care um, debates and all of that, I think 
as an advocate, we have to fight for the patient to be able to make their own decisions, right? I mean, in, in anything, whether it's reproductive health care, whether it's in, in uh, you know, diabetes care, whatever it is, we have to be able to make our own decisions. And what advocates are trying to um, convey to a lot of people um, is the additional fallout of what can happen when you restrict reproductive health care choice. It's not just about... Um, keeping a pregnancy or terminating a pregnancy. There's a lot of medications that have an unfortunate side effect of abortacetant. A lot of these medications are not for anything that has to do with reproductive care, sexual care, uh, or uh, like vaginal care, has nothing to do with that. There are some like acne medications, there are cancer treatments, there are blood pressure medications, there are, there are, like a bone health medications, mental health medications. There are a bunch of them, um, and I, I um, don't have the list, but they have side effects of being an abortacetant. And so these people who have no interest in taking the medication for anything reproductive can in some places are being denied their medication for other health concerns because of that side effect. So, um, I think, like I said, there's a lot of people who just don't seem to understand some of the fallout that can happen when you make a very broad and blanket denial of reproductive health care choice. And that's happening not just for people who are pregnant. That's happening for anybody that could theoretically potentially become pregnant. More and more pharmacists are saying, you're a woman of reproductive age. I'm not comfortable giving you this medication. And Correct. that is just unacceptable to me. Right. Um, I, I've heard stories ranging from 14 years old and a pharmacist declining lupus medication, or I'm sorry, rheumatoid arthritis medication, right. to women who are in their 50s who have had full hysterectomies, but their pharmacist doesn't know that and has no reason to know that, denying them medication for lupus or chemotherapy or any number of other things. Right. And you have women who, um, or those with uteruses who uh, are, are in that fully reproductive age who might not even be having sex because of their own personal choice. And so there's not even a, a chance of becoming pregnant because of their own choice and they can't get their medication. You mentioned a couple times evidence-based. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a big proponent. I spend way too much time reading dorky studies on all sorts of things, cybersecurity, far less time spending time reading studies like that we're talking about here. But I've got to imagine, right, doesn't the National Institute of Health, doesn't the NIH provide some funding for this? Or, or where are their funding available and where is their funding gaps? Uh, vaginal and sexual health care, um, at least for women or those assigned female at birth um, get, I think, less than 2% of the NIH um, funding for research. Wow. Yeah. I, one of my cohorts had put out uh, a big blurb about all the different statistics, and I can't remember them exactly, but I know that it was like less than 2% because it gets lumped into um, reproductive and um, obstetric and child um, healthcare research. And so then we just, the sexual medicine component gets a portion of that. So it's very little. 
there's all kinds of stipulations of why we don't get research dollars and why no one has, um, why there's not a whole lot of interest in getting these things um, researched and resolved. But there are, um, unfortunately, uh, quite a few conditions um, that are recurrent for um, women. And it's a huge, huge problem. Um, it essentially causes them to not only not be able to function sexually with a partner, but they can't really even function in day-to-day -day life. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of doctor visits. There's a lot of medications. And it's, a, it's this cycle that never, never ends. So not only are there not very many clinicians to help diagnose these people, but there's no there's no research to know how to diagnose. There's no research on treatments. There's no research on, so there's, there's also a lot of off-label treatment use because we're like, well, it kind of works. So let's give this a shot for you. So it's, it's a struggle that we all uh, have in this um, field of medicine that we are constantly fighting for more dollars. We're constantly fighting the FDA to even approve certain medications for for use that, um, so for example, like testosterone, women have eight times more testosterone than they have estrogen. Yes, I just saw your eyebrows go up. Um, so very, very, very simplistically, testosterone turns into estrogen in women. It does in men as well, uh, but a very small portion. So in women, the uh, testosterone turns into estrogen. And so um, we have, like I said, eight times the amount of estrogen. We also, um, the vulvovaginal tissues actually have quite a number of testosterone receptors in order to properly function. Um, but it needs both the testosterone and, and estrogen. The FDA refuses to approve testosterone in uh, the use, for use in women. They refuse to approve it, whether it's for um, hypoactive sexuality disorder, whether it's for um, vaginal dryness, whether it's for uh, low libido, no matter what it no matter what it is, we tell them this is working and it's working because women need eight times more testosterone than estrogen. They refuse to approve it. Um, we have some research. Um, it's very, very good research, but it's not as much research as, as cancer. And they, um, we still can't get dollars to have more research done to maybe help convince even further. And it's something that, like I said, we constantly, constantly fight for. The other thing that I read years ago that I don't think many people are aware of is how frequently women are excluded from research around <laughs> medications and drugs for the same reasons, the hypothetical potentiality that one might become pregnant. Um, so it, it's considered ethically risky to include women in drug trials because we don't want to risk there being birth defects or other side effects. And the best way to prevent that risk is simply to exclude people that could be pregnant or could become pregnant during the course of a trial. But what that means is that the vast majority of medications are only tested on male bodies and male presenting bodies. And so women effectively become sort of 
post facto guinea pigs because the medications are approved for men. They're dosed based on studies involving primarily men. And then they're prescribed to women. And the differences in hormones, the differences in male and female bodies, uh, talking, you know, biological sex, obviously not gender, but the, the, the biological differences are not often factored in to drug trials and studies. And so that means that we don't necessarily know how drugs respond in women until they're being given to women just every day and we wait and see what the fallout is. And that has always been mind blowing to me. You're absolutely correct, Stephanie. So not only is it um, pregnancy that they want to avoid uh, uh, possibly happening during the trial, but it has been said more than once that um, those pesky hormones that are cycling throughout the month that cause um, cloudy data, because not only do you have, um, so you have throughout the cycle, obviously the um, the estrogen and testosterone rise around ovulation, then they plummet real quick, and then they rise again real quick. The estrogen and progesterone rise, um, it, you know, the second phase of the cycle, and so you have those fluctuations. And so the medication, not only um, does medication affect us differently just because of our, our DNA and our, our biology, but a main component is that is because the hormones are going up and down and up and down. And women um, or females, they, they um, process medications, they process things like alcohol and um, illicit drugs, marijuana, they process this all different um, a lot of times based on their level of estrogen. Um, estrogen makes us, in general, more, um, I don't, I'm not necessarily susceptible, but it, it, it causes it to be more, I guess, susceptible. So you can have um, less alcohol and you'll still feel the same effects. Um, they're finding if your estrogen is high, things like that. So it's, it's, a lot of the research, while it was passed, I think in the 90s, I want to say that it was required that women were finally, uh, uh, you know, forced to be part of research, um, we still get excluded because it's so difficult to determine statistical significance with the hormonal fluctuations. You have to track, well, when when was your estrogen high? When was your progesterone high? When was it low? When were you menstruating? And so it just makes data so cloudy and makes it so much more difficult for researchers. But that's what, that's what your job is. You're a researcher. If you wanna help women, do it the right way. <laughs> I, I like that line. That is what your job is. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that surprised me about this conversation is I thought uh, advocacy was more with the patients. It sounds like advocacy is equally with the healthcare systems and with the physicians. Uh, is that correct? And if so, what are some of the systemic ways that you're getting this information out to, uh, again, the people who this is your job? It can be either way. It could be all kinds of ways. There are people like Stephanie mentioned that um, only, you know, help patients when they go to their, like their doctor visits and they're there to make sure that the patient gets what they need and that their concerns are listened to. They're in the clinic. There are, uh, and then um, there are patient advocates who 
as I mentioned, might be doing some fundraising or starting um, charitable organizations. There are a couple that I know that are starting some for the um, post-SSRI sexual dysfunction um, problem right now. And then um, while and then there's patient advocates like, like me um, and a couple of other of my um, fellow vaginal health advocates who do do a lot of work on the um, support groups, helping the patients, but we are finding that we are doing a lot of great work uh, interacting directly with those clinicians. Um, so we are um, able to not only, like I, I had mentioned, give the um, boots on the ground information to those clinicians, um, but then we're able to work with um, all the healthcare providers on various projects. Um, I just got accepted to an education committee, and so it's um, we're you know we're going to be able to direct uh, the education courses that are provided to those who um, want to learn more about female sexual health. Um, there are a couple of us who uh, want to work on sex education courses, whether it's for K-12 or um, the general public or med students. Um, there are uh, some of us who, they're patient advocates who work uh, directly with hospital systems to um, make sure that uh, patients concerns are being taken into account on a hospital-wide basis of how patient care is in the entire hospital. Um, so the, the information is getting out there in a multitude of different avenues, depending on what the advocate is passionate about. What about on the provider side, Amy? If you could wave a magic wand and make healthcare providers more aware or better in one area what would you fix most what what is the the key skill or quality or knowledge gap that you wish you could just magic away the first one is that um, healthcare providers stop thinking that young uh, women cannot have hormone problems um, they are taught in medical school that infertility can happen to young teenagers all the way up until um, full menopause. But if infertility can happen to those very, very young people, does it, where, why is there a disconnect that part of that infertility problem is hormone related? So I, I'm seeing a lot, and I've seen for quite some time that young women um, are being denied healthcare because the physician or healthcare provider, whatever uh, degree they have says, you are too young for hormone problems. Um, that is completely untrue. Now, while it might be less common, if this is the patient's fifth visit of the same problem, stop denying them healthcare. Um, the, the second thing that I kind of wanted to tack on is I really wish that med schools and healthcare schools um, would start providing more sexual health education. Roughly, um, so in the United States at least, when you take all of the medical schools and you kind of average 
how much sexual health education they get, they get roughly between five and 10 hours in their entire education. Now, I know that general practitioners don't need to dive into the nitty gritty of what might be happening in an unusual case, but it is clear that there is a huge, huge disparity in their education, especially now that people are becoming more vocal, they're becoming more aware, and they're demanding better health for their vulvovaginal problems, especially when pain and quality of life are involved. There are people who can't orgasm. There are people who can't sit, they can't stand, they can't walk because of pain in that region and nothing is being done. There's no education. Even Something like an OBGYN, while they have uh, an additional um, set of education and instruction and they go through all this residency, those um, clinicians are typically still not educated in a lot of these sexual health problems. And so we need an even like further, um, res not a residency, um, a fellowship where they learn from somebody else who's been in this for some time. So those are the two things that if I could wave a wand, we would fix so much, so many, so many people's lives. I think so. What are we? We're roughly about what fifty-one percent of the population, and about forty percent of the female population has a sexual health problem. Yeah, like where's the funding? Where's the education? <laughs> that knowledge gap was so very clear in, in my field as well, right? You, in mental health, you might get a human sexuality course, assuming it's even mandatory. Some places it's an elective and you might choose to take a human sexuality course. And I remember when I did my sex therapy training, one of the things that was so cool about that was that we had doctors in the room training alongside us. We had doctors that wanted to become certified sex counselors. And, and that was phenomenal. And also eye opening, because I don't think I had really thought about it until I'm like, wait, you guys didn't already know this, you had to come here and learn it. And it blew me away. Mm -hmm. So I, I am right there with you on that. Um, Wolf, I feel like this has been a very sort of Amy and Stephanie dominated <laughs> as, our, as our token male. <laughs> wow, I just become the token male. <laughs> I was I was not anticipating that. <laughs> I am very surprised about the funding. I am very surprised about the the lack of education. I'm very surprised about the percentage you put out about people who are are women who are having having problems. And I'm, I'm glad there's some technology available that can help us get some information in their hands, your website, uh, this app you're working on, uh, the work that, that you and, and your fellows do in social media forums. Yeah. If I am listening to this podcast, and perhaps if I am not a token male. You're really not. We're going to have a conversation with that one. But what advice would you give to people who may find themselves in that percentage that you mentioned who are looking for information or looking for help? What is, what is a good takeaway? Be skeptical of what you are reading. Um, a good way to be able to determine if what you're reading is 
based in actual study data is to look for the um, inclusion of the links to the published research papers. Um, it's something that I did, at least on my website um, and things that I do online, I always include the links to the research. And I've noticed um, whether it was coincidental or because I was doing it, but I've noticed that more and more people are doing this as well. Um, they're including the links to the published data so that when they say, please, please do these things, and please don't do these other things that you have seen all over TikTok. You've seen all over the internet. You've seen you, uh, uh, all, you know, spread throughout your high school or your college. Here's why it's wrong. Well, if I'm going to try to dispel a lot of these things, I better be able to prove why I'm dispelling it, where my backup is. And I know that right now in this country's vocabulary is, well, look at the research. And I really want people to look at the research, even though that term is being thrown a lot around a lot. So when you're looking for information, please, please try to verify it in, in, in research data or medical data, or go to um, a, a website that is has a phenomenal reputation, like the CDC, like um, the Mayo Clinic. Um, sexual health research organizations. These are all places that are going to publish information that has come from study data and not things like, oh, my grandmother passed on through generations to, you know, do this or that or use this product. Um, and it has no basis in, in evidence based and reality. Um, uh, treatments. There are a lot of products in stores. Um, if you look at real quickly, if you look at a box of something like Vagisil or um, Summer's Eve, their box actually tells you on the side, this product puts you at a higher risk of vaginal infections. Their own product tells you this. So I, I say Again, just when you read or you look for healthcare information, please take your time, read through what you're looking at, look for sources of the information, look for those links, read the sides of boxes. And if all else fails, contact me on Healthy Hoo Ha and I will direct you to whether there is evidence for something or not. <laughs> Fantastic. Good, good advice there. So thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Securing Sexuality, your source for the information you need to protect yourself and your relationships. From the bedroom to the cloud, we're here to help you navigate safe sex in a digital age. Be sure to check out our website, Securing Sexuality, for links to the Healthy Hoo-Ha website and for more information about the topics that we've discussed here today. And of course, information about next year's live and in-person conference. And join us again for more fascinating conversations about the intersection of sexuality and technology. Have a great week.